1: Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who harvests hot takes and grows them into podcasts, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Sarah Menker, the CEO of Grow Intelligence. AgTech tech is a very interesting new, not new area, but an area that people aren't focused on. And we're going to do that today. Sarah, welcome to Rico Decode. Thanks for having me. So we met at, a, at an event, but I, you started talking about AgTech tech and something I've been... Interest, very interested in it for a long time. I've, I've talked to the head of Land O'Lakes, all kinds of things. And we've obviously had a lot of the food technology people on the podcast. But the idea of, of big tech being pushed up against lots of different areas of industry is really interesting. And agriculture tech, to me, is super interesting. You started reeling off all kinds of fascinating statistics. Like, why is this person who looks like she stepped, like, right out of New York City talking to me about agriculture technology? Talk to me about that. Talk, talk to me about how you got there. Well, so I did
3: step out of New York City. <laughs> yes, that's what I thought. You are so glamorous. Uh, so I uh, was born and raised in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. and I ended up coming to the U.S. for college and then mm-hmm. started my career in Wall Street, and I became an oil and gas trader. Right. Okay. Which obviously. is a very natural thing to do. <laughs> so I was an energy trader, and um, if you remember the financial crisis in 08-09, who doesn't? I, you know, was kind of living in this very polarized world mm-hmm. where on one end I was going to work every day and people thought the world was coming to an end. And I was like, well, that world is not really coming to an end. I mean, Morgan St- I was working at Morgan Stanley at the time. I was like, mm-hmm. our stock going to zero sucks, but it's not the end of the world. Right. And the guy next to me at the time actually was buying gold because he thought the world was really oh, right. coming to an end. The preppers. Okay. And uh, I said, you know, if the world comes to an end, I'd rather like – trade a sack of potatoes for a bar of gold. So right, why right. would you not buy land and, like, just be a farmer? Like, right, if right. you truly believe the world's wow. coming to an end.
2: that is so mature. And, um,
3: so I decided to buy land to spite him. Yeah. And then going through this journey of trying to buy cheap agricultural land, which didn't exist in the U.S., it didn't mm-hmm. exist in Brazil, I kind of went back to my roots in, in Africa and said, I'll buy land in Africa because mm-hmm. there's lots of arable land. I have money. We can collect money. Like, I can just raise can money and land. do this. Anyway. Quickly realized that making the economics of farming work, no matter how much capital you had, was actually really difficult. Mm
2: -hmm. So I didn't buy land or farm land, at least. And uh, what did you think was so difficult? I mean, it is difficult. I think farmers are our first entrepreneur. We used to have a very entrepreneurial culture because farmers had to be very entrepreneurial, whether it was the weather, whether it was what to grow, whether what prices. It was such an entrepreneurial job, and it's not necessarily thought of that way. They still
3: are. Yeah, they um, still are. It's absolutely. one of the hardest jobs in the world. Part of why it's really difficult to make the economics work, and, and by the way, it's the same in the U.S., it's just that the government subsidizes it. Mm-hmm. But it's essentially that you know, by the time you get land and say it's cheap, in that case it was actually like a dollar an acre. Mm-hmm. But you realize I have to level the land. Well, I have to build out the roads myself. I need to build out my own infrastructure. Oh, I need power. Mm-hmm. Um, where do I get my crop insurance? Who's my banker? By the time you realize what that true cost of production is, you're basically better off buying land in the Midwest. Right. Right. So, you know, Midwest is like ten, eleven, twelve thousand dollars an acre versus a dollar an acre. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of not really a real arbitrage. Mm-hmm. And so to me that became kind of like this fascination turned mm-hmm. complete obsession over another four years. And then at some point, I was like, you know what, I just I had nothing left in me to continue being uh, an energy trader. But I was just like completely obsessed with how can you have a system that's so broken?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And how do you fix it? And I had seen in the energy markets, actually how information data had truly transformed the basically flow of capital mm-hmm. to make it A, so much more efficient, B, make markets significantly less volatile than Mm -hmm. they were, and C, make it much more longer term, which is kind of what you need to make markets work. Agriculture has none of it. Mm -hmm. And and so to me, I said, I'm not going to be a farmer, uh, but I need to figure out a way to fix the system. And to fix a system, you first need to understand it. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized – Nobody understands the mm-hmm. system. Like mm-hmm. we're all talking about it, but there was no basis for understanding it because the data had not been organized. Right, and that's kind of where the idea for Grow Intelligence
2: ones, came from. I mean, the data is all over the place, just like in a lot, like in healthcare. And there's all there's a lot of sectors that are like that. It's that, very much that, and mm-hmm. so that's
3: really what we did is as we built a platform that ingests very large, very disparate data sets that come in multiple formats and and languages because agriculture is global, mm-hmm. and each country tends to actually to report in its local language, at least the best data for that, for that right. country. Um, so it's, it's and the formatting is from like the 1970s. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, healthcare is like way advanced compared right, to agriculture, right. you yeah. know, but agriculture is way behind. And again, when we think of agriculture, oftentimes people are thinking of like corn and soybean farmers, but it's also like black pepper and vanilla and blueberries and raspberries. And so it's like so diverse in terms of what it represents. Mm-hmm. It's highly fragmented on the supply side because you can have a half acre farmer or a 50,000 acre farmer. Mm -hmm. And then demand kind of runs down to like people like you and I and the Mm -hmm. cup of coffee I'm having this morning. And so how do you essentially model a
2: real world system that's incredibly
3: complex and has been around for 12,000 years? So
2: what people need and what people need to grow and how they grow and how you get them to eat things they wouldn't necessarily. Mm -hmm. More importantly, like what is growing where and when
3: and how much of it and what's
2: at risk and Mm -hmm. what needs to go
3: where? I mean, just the even like basic question of, you know. How much wheat is Russia producing this year mm-hmm. is actually not a simple question to like answer as most people think right. it is. Right. You'd imagine Russia would have that. And data. so and what w- what we had to do is first go out and essentially, like I said, harvest all of this data. And we we designed an ontology that essentially normalizes all of it. Mm-hmm. And then we realized that there were also data gaps, so we started using that data itself to generate new data. So we're essentially using AI to organize the data, but Mm -hmm. we're also then using it to generate new types of data. So Mm -hmm. we are using it to generate data around what crops are grown where. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of countries don't report that, so we look at image classification and look at satellite imagery around the world and Mm -hmm. classify that. And We combine that with more of the macroeconomic data that comes out to start Mm -hmm. kind of mapping out that supply and demand picture. And the
2: point, so I want to get into this in much more detail, but the point being they don't know what they're doing at all. And people are sort of acting sort of anecdotally almost, right, I guess? Pretty much. And yeah. and, and actually,
3: the, you know, a very big strategic decision we made was we don't sell anything to farmers. Mm-hmm. We actually don't work with farmers because we realized that the system around the farmer is so inefficient, mm-hmm. but it has been so arrogant and assuming it knows mm-hmm. <laughs> that – There's a huge amount of misinformation around it. So whether you're selling products to farmers, so think of that as input companies or Mm -hmm. capital providers like Mm -hmm. banks or insurance, or you're buying from farmers like your CPG companies or your retailers, there actually has never been a baseline understanding of agriculture that actually allows the transfer of risk to occur. Mm-hmm. And the farmer ends up getting hurt in this process because right. they're kind of caught in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so for, for, for us, it was how do we fix the system around the farm? Mm-hmm. Because then the farmer can truly start to benefit because you start to drive down essentially the cost of capital. You drive down volatility. Mm-hmm. You do you. you fix kind of what is fundamentally so wrong. So who do you work for then? We just, it's just intelligence for whom? So think of anyone who sells anything into farms. So seed, crop protection, fertilizer, banks, insurance, then intermediaries intermediaries are basically traders so we Mm -hmm. work with hedge funds and we work with kind of your physical traders that are moving stuff around the world and then buyers so the buyers tend to be basically your consumer goods like uh, companies as well as your retailers of like fresh produce Mm -hmm. um, etc and then we work a lot with the public sector as well so we work with foundations we work with academia we actually do a lot of joint R&D research with academic institutions Mm -hmm. so we've taken a a slightly different approach but but essentially saying if you don't get this eco system of players to start communicating in in some type of way that mm-hmm. makes sense and get them to agree
2: you don't fix it. And the fixing fixing you're trying to do is what to bring down you said bring down prices bring down costs it's bring down the cost of capital, right? Mm-hmm. Let me give you a, a statistic. Okay. 63% I love your agriculture statistic.
3: This is the <laughs> best dinner I ever had
2: by the way. 63% limiting.
3: of the African population mm-hmm. is involved in farming. Mm-hmm. Less than 1% of outstanding bank loans have anything to do with the agricultural market. It's crazy. Take a place like the U.S., Mm -hmm. the top 30 banks combined, Mm -hmm. the JP Morgans, et cetera, top 30 combined, have an agricultural portfolio exposure of less than $20 billion a year. And to me... If you cannot fix capital markets around agriculture, you do not fix the system. You don't lead to increased productivity. Because if
2: you increase
3: productivity but it costs a lot to do so, then you don't fix the problem because you still have, uh, you know. uh, uh, So to me, it's like how do you reduce the cost of access to capital? Mm -hmm. How do you make that more efficiently? By farmers. By farmers and and really by the system too, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you can start to lend better to – Companies that are interacting with farmers and their cost of capital is managed, they mm-hmm. don't transfer that on to the farmer. I right. See. There's just yeah. like it just there's like this ripple effect that occurs mm-hmm. and to basically model risk, mm-hmm. you need data. Right. Exactly. And the amount of data that you need when it comes to modeling agriculture is just mm-hmm. at a completely different level. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you take something as simple as pigs in China,
4: mm-hmm.
3: It's a big Let's topic right now. Let's okay. talk about pigs in China. Uh, China produces 60% of the world's pork. It's also the largest consumer of pork yeah. per capita in the world. Right. Uh, well, this year there's African swine fever, mm-hmm. um, which is basically a disease that's killing off the pig herd. That's right. Estimation is, is about 30% mm-hmm. of pigs in China could be Are already gone and up to 50%, some are forecasting up to 50% will be Mm -hmm. gone by 2020. There's not enough pigs in the world Mm -hmm. (laughs) to make up for that shortfall unless people basically start making more uh, pigs. Making more pigs. Well, pigs eat soybeans. Mm -hmm. Well, Soybeans are at the heart of the US-China trade war. Mm -hmm. Soybeans are also at the heart of China's trade with Brazil. So now you start to say, okay, how does this play out with the trade war? How does this play out with Brazil's relationship? Well, if the Chinese don't eat pigs, do they eat chickens? Mm -hmm. Well, if they eat chicken, chicken don't eat soybeans. soybeans. So you're now thinking of other feedstock. Where Mm -hmm. are they getting that from? So you basically end up in this really like entangled web of Mm -hmm. asking a series of nested questions. That you have to have answers to. Right. So the predictive AI you have to have, you know, around that is incredibly, like, complex. complex. Yeah. And until you can start to play that out mm-hmm. and automate that
2: knowledge, we have no hope. They're just guessing. Yeah. And then the soybean farmers are caught without knowing. Essentially. What they're going to do. Or switching crops. Switching. Yeah. So you can
3: switch crops. Right. You can also switch the use of the crop, right? So mm-hmm. not, you know. Again, most people don't realize 40% of corn produced in the U.S. is not consumed by humans. It's ethanol. I did know that. (laughs) (laughs) You're driving it in your car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so there's there's just all sorts of types of switching that can occur either to other crops. Um, There can be new trade deals that occur with other regions that might Mm -hmm. need that crop. You know, there's all sorts of options. Right. But you need to know what these options are. I
2: want to get in more detail of all these kind of details, but why is that? Here is a an industry that's critical to the survival of the human race, which has gotten smaller and smaller in a lot of ways. Fewer and fewer people are doing it, even if it's 60-some percent. In Africa, it's – I forget the number. I remember the I mean, number yes, in it's the like U.S. like 1.5 percent. Right. It's, it used it to be half, of, right, yeah. or something like that, or more perhaps. Um, why is that? Because it do, It's it's a data-filled industry. Like it's full of data, including weather, including everything. Every aspect of it is data-filled. It's data-filled, but uh, you
3: know there's two things to keep in mind. A ton of the data does sit in the public domain. So mm-hmm. most of the data is collected by public institutions that collect it for one reason or another and mm-hmm. have no incentive to organize it. Right. So, I mean, some of the worst data we deal with is, you know, if you look at data that comes out of India, mm-hmm. it's in PDF files. They've scanned images on top of them, and they have handwriting plus typed up Text mm-hmm. and they move the tables around from month to month. Right, right. And you do this month after month, year after year, and you're trying to understand, mm-hmm. you know, thirty, forty, fifty years of history, it becomes a really kind of messy process. And mm-hmm. so it's that the industry as a whole doesn't exist as an industry mm-hmm. and there is not a single body that collects that data. So there's been a lot of collection, it's just badly collected. The earliest uh, I think data point that we have in our platform today is in the eighteen sixties. Mm-hmm. Which what does it say? Weather like? station. Okay. Uh, early weather stations. And Actually, technically, the very, very first one is 1701, but we don't have the actual data point. But that's okay. a, a station in Berlin. And
2: saying <laughs> what was what, what the weather was.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. We're looking at everything from like Earth, mm-hmm. which is climate, environment, soil, right. etc., right. to markets, which has right. to do with you know commodity exchanges mm-hmm. and demographics and and kind of more socioeconomic data. Mm-hmm. And you're merging all of that together, mm-hmm. and a lot of that too, like a lot of the socioeconomic data at a global scale has been collected at least going back to the 1950s.
2: Right, so they're collecting the data. You know, our government does that. and Every government does Right, that. every government collects especially, if, well, they collect all kinds of data, but farming data. But then
3: they don't is, classify it they the same uh, way.
2: Right. They, even within the same government, mm-hmm. you have different classification
3: systems. Oh, You have different which, definitions. So give me an example of the U.S. government. Who collects the data? U.S. Department of Agriculture. Right. But U.S. Department of Agriculture we think of as a department, Mm -hmm. but it's not a department. Mm -hmm. Within the USDA, you have hundreds of different databases. Right. And every single one of them is structured differently. Every single one of them is organized differently. Mm -hmm. And every single one of them has a different set of definitions and owners. And so now take that, multiply it by the number of countries in the world, Mm -hmm. And then the number of agencies that also because the USDA is not our only source of data in the US, we're also right. collecting it from all the industry associations that specialize in a particular crop right. so or or or, so, or so, so. tomato. Exactly. you have right. like you know the avocado associations and the strawberry associations. And that data might not
2: be correct, right? So that's a very good point that you All right. We're going to get to that in a minute. <laughs> we're here with a riveting conversation with Sarah Menker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence, which uses big data and predictive analytics to help farmers farm better. When we get back, we'll talk more about that and sort of where technology fits into the equation.
0: Startups. You don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money.
1: imagine the perfect employee let's call her jackie jackie is professional yet relaxed punctual friendly meets deadlines and just makes your job easier overall but the search for jackie can be long and tedious especially when you have so many other things on your plate indeed wants to help you find your next jackie And the listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: We're here with Sarah Menker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence. It's a fascinating company that uses big data and predictive analytics around farming. I'm just going to use the U.S. as an example, that they collect this data. Everybody collects it everywhere, and it sits there in different places. Who does it well? Who does a good job now of collecting data? And then I want to get into what's the best way to do this going forward. Who does it well? No one. No one? <laughs> I'm thinking I mean, the Norwegians. I was thinking maybe the
3: Norwegians. Actually, The know, Dan- Denmark. I, U.S. in terms of standards, I mean, USDA
2: is the gold standard. Uh-huh. But
3: let's just say it's
2: not the standard we want. Right. right. So
3: it's it's the best. So give an explanation but- of how the USA
2: would collect data, like in different parts.
3: Gosh, it could be surveys. Mm-hmm. So they're constantly surveying farmers mm-hmm. and then you're getting these survey results that you're having to interpret. They get what do they data. Ask? What do they- what they could be call? asked um, – so there's one thing called like, for example, the objective yield survey, which is like they basically go out and tell, ask a bunch of farmers like, what's the yield on your farm this season? Mm-hmm. And somehow all of that gets mixed in mm-hmm. and then bundled into a final number that they release. But nobody actually knows what the inputs are and, and yeah. this has actually been one of our biggest – things that we've been pushing in the industry is transparency. Mm-hmm. There's a huge lack of transparency even amongst government agencies mm-hmm. in terms of how data is collected and how they generate the final numbers. Right. And one of the things that we've set out to do in, in, in challenging this is actually we've built predictive models mm-hmm. that actually are forecasting those same numbers that these agencies are reporting. Okay. And these are very kind of complex uh, machine learning models mm-hmm. that we have completely opened mm-hmm. and so we basically published all the methodology mm-hmm. we provided all the inputs into the models and gone out to the world and say, hey, if a private company can go out and essentially start to provide some of this stuff as a public good, I think we need to start having conversations with governments about how they are coming up with their estimates because we need to be able to reproduce results. And right right now we can't reproduce results.
2: So they – but that's because they've been doing it this way forever. Like presumably that's why. And the whole government, the way it does data is another – that's a (laughs) – like I said, every government. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. this is – for us,
3: it's, it's it's when you're in the business of A, you know, trying to get to a truth, mm-hmm. which is what we're trying to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then B, when you're in that process discovering where there are gaps and you are generating a new truth, mm-hmm. transparency becomes your – So what friend. are the inputs?
2: So where do you get the inputs
3: so, where, well, this is, I mean, where quality of data comes in right. as, okay. as, as something really important. You know, crap someone, in, crap out, I guess. Exactly, right? Like, would you rather have the world's most complex algorithm with crappy data or the dumbest algorithm with really good data?
2: I the take the latter. The first one is policing data, for
3: example. <laughs> but go on. I,
2: I'm, on a, I'm on a, like, a. I just am like, why are you using this data at all? It's so bad. It's such a bad, like, what's the
3: point? Exactly. So, in and in, in our case, we care a lot about getting and having the data well organized and having very high quality data. Mm-hmm. And so, how we generate it is that um, let me give you a, a real life example. Okay, please. U.S. government at the end of every season releases maps that show where every crop across the U.S. was grown.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Argentina does not. Russia does not. I mean, most places in the world don't basically. Mm-hmm so we can then build an algorithm that says oh we want to classify where all the corn fields are and all the soybean fields are in the US mm-hmm. we can ground truth it using the data that gets released at the end of a season mm-hmm. we train the models off of that and then essentially when we start to apply i mean Corn looks the same everywhere in the world. Soybeans look the same everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. We start to build these masks at a 30-meter resolution in South America. So you take pictures. Yeah, so we're we're taking pictures that come Mm -hmm. from the European Space Agency Mm -hmm. and classifying it 30 meters at a time for the world. Mm -hmm. And there, you're literally generating new forms of data, Mm -hmm. but that data... Would not exist had you not trained it on good data that came from a, some other region in the
2: world. Right. Okay. Oh, that's fascinating.
3: Uh, so that's like one example. Mm-hmm. The other is you're also you know when you have one measure. So say the supply of wheat mm-hmm. in India. Mm-hmm you can have like 10 sources that report that number. Your challenge then becomes which number is the best number, right? So right. if you th- if you think of what Google did, which is like you can, you can do a search and it will give you a bunch of search results, but they're not ranked by quality of information. Mm-hmm. We've developed a ranking methodology that actually ranks based off quality of source. Mm-hmm. And the way that we get to the quality of source is we triangulate all the other data that could exist that's related to that right. to get to what seems objectively closest to the truth. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many kind of layers of, of complexity. I mean, at this mm-hmm. point, our dictionary is classifying over 55 million agricultural terms around the world. Wow. Um, we're translating from about 15 different languages mm-hmm. and we're processing north of 700 trillion points a day.
2: Wow. Okay. Right. So, so it's
3: just a massive system. So,
2: so, talk about how it helps that system because I want I people to understand on a basic level why it's important to have this because it gives data. You're not helping farmers figure out what to plant. What kind of help do farmers have in that? They have lots of help. Yeah. Um, And, and, you know, there's tons of
3: kind of technologies that have emerged. Mm -hmm. And particularly, I think all the companies selling products to farmers right now, frankly, have tools Mm -hmm. that are telling them, you know, this is what you should plant. And that's called precision farming. Mm -hmm. So that's a very specific set of decisions that tend to be think of them as like hyper localized. Right. Right. Because you're a farmer. You're thinking Mm -hmm. of every half acre plot you're dealing with. Sure. Um, What we're thinking of is how does the system as a whole work Mm -hmm. and how does that tiny plot relate to the rest of the world in that system? Um, But there's tons of products out there that are owned both by like Lando Lakes has a a version Mm -hmm. of that. All the uh, seed companies have some products. The equipment companies have products. And so there's and then there's independent companies that have emerged that
2: most of them get acquired. But, you know, are they always right? see could you for divide it's like that That's not good advice to give these you farmers
3: know, the science has gotten quite good mm-hmm. at being able to optimize because that becomes like a physiology problem with soil and, with soil and it, you're, water you know and, and, and that's why it's called precision agriculture because mm-hmm. you're really taking very specific information at a super micro level mm-hmm. and optimizing for that and that is a science problem that we have figured out. Mm-hmm. So it's a how do you deploy that at scale? How do you make it cheaper? How do you make it work? Right now that technology mm-hmm. tends to work only for really big farms. How do you transfer that technology to work for smaller farms? Because right. a lot of that is embedded in larger equipment. So mm-hmm. if you have a Two acre farm or a ten acre farm, you can't do it. Uh,
2: one of the things I heard, weirdly enough, I heard it last night about someone putting a, a sensor on a cow, like putting sensors on everything. Is that data that you would be inter- Putting, there, you know, I, I know GE was talking about putting sensors on engines that they make for tractors or tractor companies. They, they t- kind of tout that idea of constant streams of data about everything. Yep. How would you use that? So that's just another input. uh, Mm -hmm. And depending on what those sensors
3: capture, I mean, that's no different from weather stations, which are – you know, right. have a ton of different sensors. It's right. no different than satellites that are instrumented in particular ways. That, right. You know, and, and so our science team, our geospatial team, for example, knows every satellite in orbit and what instruments it has mm-hmm. to know what variables we can capture and translate from mm-hmm. that. Right. So not every satellite can give you
2: temperature. How, how would that and, be useful to you to have a sensor on a cow? Like this? It's just interesting. I just hear a lot of this, and I'm like, why do they want to have that? What is? Well, with cow, it's a lot about. Feeding and, right, and health and location. Right, and and location. Health. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, but it's also, I mean, it is also just about maintaining like the cow's body essentially. Right, right. Um, and so think of that as the precision farming equivalent right. for the cow. Right, right. right. <laughs> uh, for managing each cow, one cow at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, can you optimize your your milk output and minimize your cost of inputs? Right. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, dairy farmers are constantly struggling. So if you can solve that problem, mm-hmm. that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. So that type of data for us is just another signal that we could use and, and and think of it as maybe we don't even use any of the data that the sensors are capturing, but we right. just you don't use want to the know location where the cow is moving. Right. And then we can do counts of how right. many cows there are. Right, got it. Right, got And it, that it. like you gives That's you some piece too. of information. Right. I mean right. we're constantly we're you know, kinda of like Data freaks in the sense that uh-huh. we take take much any any we'll take anything, we'll take anything and everything. What's missing? <laughs> what What do you need more data on when it relates to farming? Uh, I think oh, the hardest data to understand is actually data related to demand. Mm-hmm. Demand data is really complicated, and demand modeling is really complicated because you're modeling is that human behavior. That. Right, you're modeling human behavior. You're modeling culture mm-hmm. uh, societal trends mm-hmm. things that are so much more kind of nuanced right? right so you know something you always hear is like oh as the world gets richer people are gonna eat more meat yeah that's an old well that's not necessarily true everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. It's not true in India mm-hmm. because they just don't eat that much meat. Right, in India. right. So when you get wealthier in India, you drink more milk. Right. Um, you know, like right. so. What are kind of these underlying metrics that you use for modeling demand? So mm-hmm. we've had to be, I think, the most creative when it comes to understanding human example. behavior and demand. Forecasting demand of meat mm-hmm. every month—it's one of the hardest hardest problems Mm -hmm. there is out there and it's because... Explain why it's so hard. uh, It's hard because again, it's tied to Uh, data that is harder to come across so Mm -hmm. the macroeconomic data or demand data tends to be almost too macro Mm -hmm. and you're trying to model things at a micro level right right? so it's just there's a lot of missing data Mm -hmm. so you're then taking when you're modeling this out instead of saying um so when we're modeling supply let me give you a supply problem versus Mm -hmm. a demand problem when we're modeling the supply of corn Mm The number of features we use in a model, meaning how many variables we use, is quite limited on a relative basis. And how Mm. many we test is also relatively limited Mm. because plant science has already told us so much about how corn grows that we're somewhat constrained to it. Mm -hmm. When we started building our first beef demand model, Mm -hmm. uh, I think we put in 350 features (laughs) (laughs) to try and find something, anything that works. We ended up with about 35. Mm -hmm. But that's still... You know, five versus thirty five. And right. so you're you're just you're you're kind of, you know, searching for a needle in a haystack because there isn't enough and so you're kind of taking everything and then trying to extract what could be something that you haven't So no understood. one's keeping track of yeah, it's really hard to keep track of because individual restaurant or individual sellers or buy. Well, supermarkets would have supermarkets have some data, but mm-hmm. supermarkets are not representative of a global. So right. Think of so our challenge right. is oh, always yeah. how is do a, you do this at global scale? Global scale, yeah. and that's where it starts. It's fun and exciting, and right. nobody's ever done it, right. and nobody's ever
2: done it for a reason. So Sometimes I feel in, like we're completely nuts. Know, butchers in Japan or wherever, however yeah. people, because people do get by yeah. in different ways, and then it's not just meat. Mm-hmm. Do you need to get information? on
3: cuts of meat. And right. then when you start to get cuts of meat, you know, complete elasticity mm-hmm. in terms of a demand for different cuts depending mm-hmm. on different times. And you'll see that even in like places like the U.S. during... Bad economic times, it's not people eat less meat, they just eat cheaper cuts of meat. Right, right. Uh, you know, so you're like, oh gosh, looking at a metric that just says this is total beef demand is not even useful to my life. Right, I right, so, right. So much more nuance. So you right. start getting into the weeds of the details mm-hmm. and, and ultimately, you know, you start to getting into varieties and size. I mean, fruits and vegetables are another nightmare to oh, work tell with. Tell
2: me about fruits and vegetables. <laughs> Why are fruits and vegetables <laughs> a nightmare, Sarah? They are a nightmare. Uh, highly
3: perishable. Yeah. not commoditized mm-hmm. so therefore there aren't formal marketplaces and exchanges where you can basically transfer risk so corn, yeah like corn is traded on the CME so at the end of the day you get a price and it's mm-hmm. a big market and everything else all of these are super niche markets where there are mm-hmm. tons and tons of private transactions right. and they're all produced at much smaller scale and because you can't store them there's just inherently so much more volatility. Right, you can't
2: count them. Right, yeah, you don't it's count harder them. to
3: you, you, even if you count them. Like you know, worst case scenario of a price of some product that is commoditized is too low. You put it in storage and mm-hmm. then you take it out of storage and sell it when prices are high enough. Mm-hmm. There's no doing that in lettuce. Right, you sell it or you sell it. Right, right, right. <laughs> and so that as a result, just the 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 volatility in in
2: fresh produce markets is just mm-hmm. significantly higher. Right, so you don't know why things are expensive. Every now and then you get, it. oh, avocados are going to be more expensive because of well, rain. Well, we know and- why
3: avocados are expensive. Right. Because 90% of them come from Mexico. Right. So every time there's you know potential shutdown of a border or a trade war, right. avocado prices go up.
2: All right, we will get into that next with Sarah Menker. She is the hyper-intelligent CEO of Grow Intelligence, and she loves avocado data. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about more of what we can do to help feed more people and try to get make the system more seamless and transparent when we get back. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner,
1: you already know that it's really really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. <laughs> Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
5: Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you.
2: We're here with Sarah Menker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence, which is a company that does uh, big data and predictive analytics uh, to help. Well, I don't know farmers farm better. How do you explain? Like,
3: yeah, it's, it's, we use data and predictive analytics to mm-hmm. actually help businesses in agriculture make more efficient decisions. Decisions, which yeah. they're making
2: almost anecdotally in, many, in, many, in cases, many cases. In many cases. So talk about where we're going with this. Like what what needs to happen to bring this industry, which is so critical to survival of the human race, into a more, you know, we do probably, I'm guessing Tinder is more, has more information than we have about farming, right? About people's behavior. <laughs> well, I think... We're, we're building that, right? right. And, and so if you think of consumer apps,
3: mm-hmm. the way that they get the data is that they're taking data from their users. Right. And then they're getting constant yeah, inputs. Yeah, they're commercializing that. Mm-hmm. In our case, in some ways we we're lucky because a ton of the data is already out there and we're just mm-hmm. organizing it. So right. we're not taking anyone's data, mm-hmm. but we are generating new forms of data using old forms of data. Right, you're using it and raised data. And, and we've what we've built is, is basically data infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And data science infrastructure. You know, I was listening to one of your interviews with, with Kai Fooley, Uh-huh. and he was talking about the second wave of AI being business AI. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, to get any of that to work, mm-hmm. you need good data. Right. And business AI cannot function in an agriculture with just the data that each business has of its own businesses. Right. Because it's you need collective. contextual right. data. Right. Yeah. And so we're that contextual data layer that mm-hmm. becomes necessary for kind of that second wave of these businesses to, to kind of move forward. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's in some ways, that's what's exciting about it, is that, you know, organizations have their own data. We don't take any company data, but what we do, do is we go into the companies and give them this data and data science and machine learning infrastructure
2: that they merge with their data to kind of take so things to the more next like level. like soup, right? Because exactly. you get that too, right? Because then you get their data. So when these trade wars happen, and a lot, a lot of them are about farming, and, and there's lots of goods, or about lots of goods, but it, it focuses on farming a lot of the time. When you see that, what happens when you have those situations? Um markets go crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know,
3: uh, (laughs) avocados, as as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, last time there was talk of of shutting down a border, 24 hours, avocado prices were up 35 percent. 48 hours, they were up 60 percent. Because of the anticipation. Just the anticipation. But also, you know, if you think of avocados, 90 percent of avocados come from Mexico into Mm -hmm. the U.S. Mm -hmm. And Americans eat avocados. uh, You know, it used to be that People only ate avocados on particular occasions. And there's Mm -hmm. like five holidays where Mm -hmm. actually still about a third of avocados are consumed in the Mm -hmm. U.S., which is um, 4th of July, Cinco de Mayo, uh, St. Patrick's Day. What? (laughs) Super Bowl. Okay. Oh. Guac. And uh, Labor Day. Okay, guac. Guac, guac. Exactly. Right. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the fancy sliced avocados. Right. Right. But anyway, that means that people actually buy tons of avocados. Like all the retailers buy them and store them in advance in anticipation because your avocado sales are kind right. of cyclical. Mm-hmm. And so when you have something happen like that just before Cinco de Mayo, what mm-hmm. happens? Everybody rushes to buy. Right. Um, and that's what drives prices up, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, we have US-China trade war that's much more about soybeans. And, mm-hmm. and in that case, you know, it's essentially the minute China stops buying soybeans from the US. I mean, the trade war is not about soybeans, but mm-hmm. it impacts the soybean sure. market in the US. Sure. And the US exports $12.5 billion of soybeans a year. The government came up with a solution, which is just pay farmers, right. and
2: which is not a solution.
3: Well, it's not a long term solution. Right. And the the big risk there becomes if China replaces its soybean demand by just going to Brazil and investing right. more in Brazil. Right. What That's happens exactly going to you know to the U.S. farmer? Yeah. And I think there's some big kind of strategic
2: uh, questions that mm-hmm. need to be asked. Yeah, I think I was just talking about that with around computer stuff. Is what if they you know with Huawei and everything if they replace the vendor, you have to replace the vendor with someone else. You, that's That business is completely lost versus not. When you think about the world food economy, what are some of the important trends that you see from the data? What are you, when you look at all of it? I mean,
3: one is, I, I've been saying this to the team recently, which is, you know, I can't tell if the world is just so much more messed up today mm-hmm. or we can see so much more of it I because we have second. so much data. I just was talking about you know, this and, sure. and I think it's the second, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but there are some things that are happening more frequently. Mm-hmm. One is extreme climate events. Right. So climate shocks are, whether it's droughts or floods, are impacting mm-hmm. the world in a much more frequent level mm-hmm. continuously. Right. So that means actually our understanding of the system as a whole needs to definitely go up a notch mm-hmm. as a result of that. So climate shocks are huge. Climate shocks are actually tied to disease. Mm-hmm. So animal disease and plant disease is very much tied to climate. Mm-hmm. So that means now you have disease risk that looks very different. So mm-hmm. tracking disease and the spread of disease becomes quite critical. Mm-hmm. So those two are, are, are pretty large. Which data that you provide to disease. Exactly. You yeah. have to model disease risk to be able mm-hmm. to forecast supply. We do work with very weird stuff sometimes. <laughs> I, go to the I was like, yes, I do work with plant diseases and yeah. animal diseases. Right. Um, the third big trend is is a trend towards people asking questions around redefining food security to be around diversification versus mm-hmm. uh, very country-to-country dependent trade. Right. So if you look at the world food system today, it's pretty much there are countries that are net Avocado. importers right. and there are countries that are net exporters of mm-hmm. just food and calories mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so far it's just been the U.S. and now South America that have been kind of the emergent net exporters to the right. rest of the world, to right. Asia, to Africa, right. et cetera what has started to happen is you've now have have uh, bigger net exporters emerging namely the black sea region so mm-hmm. you have russia and ukraine becoming very dominant forces in agriculture so the agricultural trade system will start to look different um, it will start to look different because it will it will right. be people will tr- start to trade with a a more diverse set of trading partners right diversify your risk right, sure. in case one shuts down on you but b people will also start trading closer meaning mm-hmm. you don't have to ship everything you know across multiple oceans <laughs> right yeah <laughs> to, to get it what where What does it
2: needs that do for because we're all so obsessed with the US here in the US um, what does that do to the US farming market like what when these when you start to collect these data points and point them out what do you do I mean, or is it just a secular shift that is just the way other secular shifts?
3: It's, it's a secular shift like other <laughs> secular shifts. I mean, I think w- there will be important questions that the U.S. farmer will be faced with. And mm-hmm. I think there will be in questions, important questions that the U.S. government will be f- faced with. you want to remain a food exporter. D- do you want to remain a food exporter? But, which it will, mm-hmm. but it's what kind of food exporter? Mm-hmm. What's the role of, again, government heavily, heavily backs the U.S. agricultural sector. Mm-hmm. It's not one that is standing on its own because mm-hmm. it's, highly commercial it's one that's standing up because it's highly backed by government right post great depression so mm-hmm. the system that was put in place right after the great depression is the system that we use today right it's, it's a does little it bit does it have
2: to be that system no
3: in fact you need to completely rearchitect it so how would you do that um you need to make the system commercial. You need to have a world where the top 30 banks have more than $20 billion of exposure
2: right. to agriculture. Right, right. And to me, you do So don't... they're lending to promote innovation and new Yeah, new like
3: ideas. where... It's not to say the government doesn't play a role. It's like, how do you use that money to drive the innovation necessary mm-hmm. to start transforming the food system in, in a much more kind of core and fundamental way? And how do mm-hmm. you reassess what that system looks like? People want to eat healthier. People want to eat, you know, more greens. Uh, there's like, you know, big dietary shifts
2: that are also, mm-hmm. like, thematically starting to occur. Like, How do you get ahead me, of that? But, yeah, all those things. How do you look at those things? So that's a, like... Uh I, I've just noticed they're everywhere now. They're in. That was at Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington D.C. Would Beyond you like? Meat chili well, they bowl. had both Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, and they were delicious. But I was sort of like, "What is it doing here?" Like it was.
3: <laughs> you know, their taste has gotten significantly better over yes. the years. Yes. I will say that I, t- I taste all of them once a year. Mm-hmm. I-, I love meat. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up yeah, in Ethiopia. Too. I'm like, you know, it's yeah. like, but. You know, I think their role is Which gonna by the still way, has be wonderful vegetable dishes yes. <laughs> so, We yes. do we're vegans twice a week, so yeah. I think that helps. Yeah. Uh, but I think um, those those types of products work well for, you know, high paying yes. consumers. Right. Um they're the goal impacting is not a to particular be. Supposed to be, demographic. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations around the rise of veganism, for example. Right. And we looked at the data and I had to send it to someone who got very disappointed because right. she was going out to like advocate for veganism and how there are more vegans in the world. And I said, Well, if you look at the per capita consumption numbers, it actually just tells you that we're eating less beef mm-hmm. but eating more chicken. Right. <laughs> like right, right. people are substituting
2: <laughs> one form of meat for another form right. of meat. Saturday Unfortunately vegans. that's substituting it for yeah. vegetables just yet you know I always feel <laughs> vegans are a hundred percent right but I they annoy me and I'm like oh you're right you know when you read any of it you're like correct you are but th- I, I do think the idea of of substituting me these these trends are, will trickle down to others they all do all these food trends that start at the high level tend to you know, who was eating yogurt for until they everybody was eating yogurt kind of thing.
3: Yeah. I mean they they will trickle down but they won't do it at the expense of meat that most people right. kind of yes, expect. And and part of it is because again, when you think of it globally You know, your per capita consumption of meat in so many parts of the world is so low. People are still consuming, you know, a couple of kilograms of meat a a year. Right. And 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 then others, your people are doing, you know, 30 kilograms. Right. Uh, And so there's just so much more upside there because, Mm -hmm. again, this is where I said modeling demand is more difficult because culture. Like, how do you shift culture? How do you tell an African that serving vegetables is a sign of wealth? Right.
2: No, right. No, me. More meat you serve, yes, yes is the exactly. More wealth you right. show, right. exactly, which is fascinating. <laughs> and then the more developed world is shifting the other way. That meat is like, well, you know, oyster. I'm always fascinated with oysters. I love oysters. I don't know if you know, that. but I'm I always like, it used to be like we were on the we were at beaches down in Britain and they were covered with oyster shells. It's because it was the food for the poor. That it was the shitty food and, and now – and then it became the wealthy food. It's just a very – I just love watching food trends and they, how they shift and move. What role would technology play, besides beyond data in the food economy? It's – you know, people, there's, there's things like Beyond Meat. There's all kinds of investments being made in food distribution and all – and stuff like that. But as you say, it's on the high end as, at the beginning. What, what needs to happen from a technology perspective?
3: Well, I think the first thing that needs to happen is that people need to start with a global perspective. So mm-hmm. there's this idea oftentimes when tech companies start that let me just figure out this this local problem, mm-hmm. and then I can just scale it globally. And right. there's an assumption that yeah, that idea neat. will just automatically scale globally. Mm-hmm. I think that needs to change. Mm-hmm. And, and as a company, we have done that very intentionally from day one. Mm-hmm. So we are about 70 people now. Um, one in three people is of a different ethnicity or nationality in the mm-hmm.
2: company. Oh, wow. You're diverse and realize <laughs> and, how important that but, is. you know,
3: <laughs> we have about 28 different disciplines. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the reality is that if you are modeling, and, uh, you know, every tech company is an AI company nowadays, right. uh, whether that's right or wrong. Right. But it, it's like, if you're building an AI to, to address a problem
2: mm-hmm. that AI has to represent the world that it absolutely. is absolutely thank you for saying and that. so to me you now win the best <laughs> person I know this year
3: and so to me it's, it's, it's that if we don't start changing our f- Frame of mind from the day we start these companies or making products. Yep. In the way that we're making products, and we say if I'm if I truly have global ambition, I can start local. Mm -hmm. My design process from day one has to be built around that ambition. Right. Otherwise, you just go completely wrong.
2: Right. Absolutely. Um,
3: And so for for me, it's the or the small area is good enough for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can definitely make that choice. I always, I always,
2: two things I always say. You know, why did the products get made that get made by Silicon Valley and why do they get funded? And it has it's a lot to do with the people who make them and the lives they live. And so I would say San Francisco is assisted living for millennials because they the things they make are all about like – do you know what I mean? Like I need my food. I need my dry cleaning. I need my, and it's all men. <laughs> convenience. It's all, it's all around convenience. And then the second part is when I think about – social media and things like that. I'm always like the reason why it's the way it is is because the people who made it never felt unsafe. If they felt unsafe, they would have made it in a different way. They would have created it and thought about it in a different way. And if you don't think globally around your products, it's a real problem.
3: Context matters. Yeah. Um and to me it always just blows my mind every time I'm like, hey do we have a Russian speaker? Of course we do. Like yeah, you know yeah. and it really like makes such a big difference because you know when you're dealing with translation, for example. Right. You run into all sorts of walls when Mm -hmm. you're doing context-specific translation about varieties of wheat. Like Mm -hmm. the automated translation systems don't work for that. Right, of course. And so you need a lot of human knowledge. They will. But But for them to do that, you Mm -hmm. need the human knowledge that helps train that, right? Right. And so to me, it's like you need to have people Mm -hmm. that are a part of that creation process that Mm -hmm. are constantly kind of providing that feedback Mm -hmm. to to do so.
2: So what's your ambition to take this to?
3: I mean, did you buy land if you bought land yet?
2: No, no land. I built a company <laughs> instead. I decided I'll
3: have another headache.
2: <laughs> I do not see you as a farmer. Sorry. You would be surprised. You would be
3: surprised how
2: much time I spend I on farmland. Tra- yes, I know you do, but on the tractor. I don't <laughs> on see the it. tractor,
3: actually. Yeah, I'm yeah. a little small for that. Yeah. Um, no, our ambition is how do we become the industry standard, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so to us. How like, would go- you compare yourself? With, like, a what? that's the best part. We don't have a what. And in some ways, it's the brilliance of what we do and it's also the complexity of what Mm -hmm. we do. Um, Mm -hmm. And when we were initially raising money, you know, everyone wants to know the what for
4: what. And I'm like,
3: I don't have anything for you. I'm literally trying to build something that I think the system needs and I think the world needs. And, you know, in some ways, we're data infrastructure and people kind of relate us to a Bloomberg, but mm-hmm. we're not because mm-hmm. we're not dealing with just financial services, right. and we're also have we have a data science layer. Mm-hmm. In other ways, we are a search engine, mm-hmm. uh, but we're just a highly contextualized search right. That's engine a really good data. way of putting it. That's a really And so, you know, it's it's kind of this this mix um, mm-hmm. of of different inspirations, but mm-hmm. but ultimately, our creation process was just like what does the world need? need. I mean, need. when I quit oh, my job, right. mm-hmm. I didn't quit my job to say I started I'm starting a tech company. I quit my job. And I said, there is this really big problem I need to solve. And my boss is like, what exactly are you going to do? And right. at the time, I mean, he just reminded me of, of what my write up was. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I think you should just take a sabbatical because ah. is not going to be a company.
2: Oh, wow. Because uh, it was so small. And How did it was you explain like to so- so- venture capitalists. And by the way, you're one of the few young women CEOs.
3: Yeah. Um, well, so at first I didn't need to explain it to venture capitalists. Okay. Right. Um, I think I started from a very a place of pri- what I call a place of privilege that mm-hmm. I had to work for. Mm-hmm. But I was relatively successful on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I'd been there for about nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I quit, um, the people I quit on mm-hmm. were the first few million dollars into the company. Wow. Um, and so the those individuals really they were like, I have no idea what you're trying to do, but I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as soon as I was ready to raise money, they were kind of the first money in. And then since then, we've raised about $40 million. Mm-hmm. And there we raised from highly institutional, very global funds. So the mm-hmm. way we did describe it is we went to, you know, TPG Growth is as, as a backer of mm-hmm. ours, Data Collective. So we we got some really you good— We went to the right people. We went to, but they really understood the problem. Yeah. And they were okay with a business that from day one had really global ambitions, mm-hmm. which is— Difficult to kind of explain. But where do you
2: live? Where do you you're, you're in? We're in New York, right? Uh, and in Kenya. And you're not in California. No. Yeah.
3: So we're in uh, Nairobi and, and New York. That's the perfect <laughs> very, to be. you know, <laughs> a, com- a perfect combination. Did you imagine
2: you could do this from Silicon Valley, which is where many of these kind of companies are created? Not your kind of company.
3: Never wanted to move there. Why? I don't know. You know, like I loved New York. Mm-hmm. I'd lived here, and then. At the heart of what I was trying to do was also be reconnected to home, and for me, definition Mm -hmm. of home was not just Ethiopia; it was anywhere in Africa. Mm -hmm. And so I found Kenya, moved there, started an office. I mean, I knew three people when I started the company there, Um, and just figured, you know, it's it's about time the world kind of sees a different kind of company, and I think we could do it differently. And I believe this is a a big topic.
2: I want to finish up on this. not just because you're a woman, a person of color, but it's beyond that. It's that there's talent. Ever. The talent. One of the things that I was struck by someone recently said: it's not a question of talent; it's a question of opportunity. You know, and finding companies. And I just, you know, Steve Case and all the Mark Hume, they are all trying to get find talent everywhere in this country necessarily. But I was like, there's global talent everywhere, and the ability to get capital to those people to think up new ideas and fresh things has been incredibly hard based on no data so You know what I mean? Like that's what's so irritating about it is this sort of monoculture that gets created in entrepreneurship. I
3: mean, I th- in some ways, I think that's why I feel a deep sense of responsibility to mm-hmm. make this company successful.
2: One, right. because – It shouldn't be on your shoulders, everything. Yeah,
3: no, but uh, but, but, I, but I do because, I, A, I deeply care about the problem. Right. Like, again, it was a problem and then technology mm-hmm. became a solution right. as opposed to the other way right. around, which Got is we it. built this thing yeah. and then we need to find a home for it. But the, the second part being that it's, it's that I think the more – examples you have, mm-hmm. the more normal it becomes. Mm-hmm. And and so it becomes, you know, like who who were the people that were my role models that made me feel confident to do what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. It's If you do a little bit of that
2: over time, I think it just naturally changes. Hopefully. It's really interesting because diversity is the natural way to go when you want success. You know what I mean? In farming and anything kind of stuff. And it's really interesting to me that we still have a monoculture around Cap, capital, and then where it's put, and it's it seems so analog to me that they do it this way, and you know, it's you know what I mean. Like the data doesn't show this, but they don't continue. They continue to be. It's just interesting.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's one of these things that I th- I think of our journey. I think of my journey and my t- my two co-founders. Um, you know, it's like all of us. I think started, like I said, from a place where we had enough confidence, and right. we were not absolutely. like right out of college. No, absolutely, and I think that helps. Right. I mean, I don't. I have no idea like what that would have been if I tried to do this right out of college. Right. Probably
2: wouldn't have worked. Yeah.
3: Wouldn't have worked because the first few million, I wouldn't have known the people I ended up knowing. Right. <laughs> Back the company. In right. The very very yeah. early days. You know, you first need that just very first chance, right? right. And I think if you prove yourself there, yeah. then it just becomes like significantly easier. But the
2: question is, how do we get capital, people with capital to trust different people? You know what I mean? Like, they'll give millions of dollars to a 22-year-old guy. You know, they, you know, they will. They'll just do it. But it's really fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, I had a very interesting argument with someone yesterday where we were talking about immigration and its impact on tech. And they were going on about HB1 visas. I'm like, not the people that will help you do what you're already doing. I said, do you know where innovation's going to come from? You don't, like, necessarily. And I said... I would bet there's a little girl on that border in one of those things that maybe has a cure for cancer, or maybe like would create the next trillion dollar company. But she'll never get the chance. Like, why are we bad at like allocating capital to talent? Why is it such a bad system?
3: Finding people is, is a lot of work. And, yes. No, know, I know, it's but like, it's just it's, it's, it's one of these things. No, it's, right. listen, I, I, like, but, but that's why I truly say, like, the more of me there are, yeah the more it becomes like people also say i, guess, I right. can i can look at that i can relate to that and mm. i can do it too right there's, yes, that's there's true. a lot I got of that like get... the confidence that people lack in themselves too i just too. think they're so
2: stupid um, but lastly how do you as a leader you're an entrepreneur i always ask entrepreneurs this what is the thing that you think you did really well and is an advice to people to for entrepreneurs and what did you do that you like oh i shouldn't have done it that way i did you know
3: what did I do really well? <laughs> um, what do you do really well? What do I do really well? Oh, what, what makes me happy or what do I do really well? Either uh, I think what I do really well is sell the vision of the company and sell mm-hmm. the product. Um, mm-hmm. And I do that really well because it comes from a really, like, honest place mm-hmm. um, and a passionate place. Mm-hmm. And that what I do really well is product as mm-hmm. a result because I'm constantly, you know, mm-hmm. every interaction, every conversation I have, I'm like, my brain is, like, firing in 10,000 directions. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of, like, what I would have done I differently. I am flawless. I'm <laughs> Beyonce. Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> she has a song called Flawless. Yes, I, uh, but uh, <laughs> you're, you're with me. I'm it. aware of Beyonce. I've heard, of, I've heard tell of her. <laughs> um, no, I think sometimes uh, what, one thing that is hard to do as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. is when your vision seems so crazy, mm-hmm. you learn to tame it down at yeah. times to just kind of manage your own expectations yeah. versus kind of being like— No, this is what it is. This is what it is. I've had to learn that skill. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is that, you know, when you work on Wall Street, I was a trader. You make money, you lose money. Mm -hmm. I'm always hedging for the downside. Right. I'm always assuming that, you know, a journey is not linear. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the highs can never be as high and the lows can never be as low. How do you kind of build this consistency? And so as a result, what you end up happening, doing is like managing that sort of trajectory in a way that, you know, as an entrepreneur and as a visionary, is not necessarily what you get rewarded for. Right, right, right. Uh, right. And so I've
2: learned that over time. You see, I like to think. just say, "No, I'm right" the whole time. I see
3: it. You do not. <laughs> you know, it takes a few months of like losing money month after month, and your manager being like, "Are you sure you like that position?" And yeah, you're like I'm pretty certain I do, but yeah. I'm gonna go and puke right now.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'd never be
3: a trader. I'd be the worst trader. <laughs> and and you literally like trailer. have to kind of decide yeah. what your convictions are, yeah. and you have to live through that. Right. But that also means that in those moments, if you become a miserable person every time you're losing money, and you're right. only happy when you're you're making money. You're kind of a net net miserable is a human fair being. Point. <laughs> so. But you know,
2: <laughs> entrepreneurism does take a leap. Absolutely. Just this morning, I had an idea, and someone was pushing back, and I'm like, "No, you're wrong. I'm completely right. I don't want to listen to a word you're saying." Anyway, it was interesting. This has been a pleasure, Sarah. Uh, I just think I hope great success with this company. You're one of the most interesting entrepreneurs I've met in a long time. Thank you. And, and the kind of spirit you have is exactly what we need more of uh, throughout Silicon Valley and tech and data and everything else. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on my show. This this is Sarah Menker. She's the CEO of Grow Intelligence, which helps its data about farming and, and making sense of it. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Sarah, where can people find you and Grow Intelligence online? People can find us
3: on Twitter at, at Intel G-R-O Intel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm at Sarah Menker, and um, we're pretty active publishers on LinkedIn. Publishers of data, Uh, of content, content. Oh, great! We publish tons of free content. What is your latest? The avocado. (laughs) The avocado. No, the latest has been driven around actually market moves driven by U.S. government uh, releases that shocked markets and drove market prices into a you know downward spiral over Mm -hmm. the last week. All right. Um, So very much focused around climate in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Government
2: reports that don't make sense and. uh, And how we fix that. Cool. Well, we'll look for those. (laughs) If you like this episode, we really appreciate if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.